I'm Josie Mitchell, and this is the Granta Magazine podcast. We have a new series out, speaking to authors about their novels, poetry, memoir, and short story collections, and also about life under lockdown. This was recorded remotely, so apologies for the shifts in sound quality. It has been a strange year, and I'm very grateful to all the authors who made the time to talk. Today, I'll be talking to Jenny Offill about her book, Weather. It's an exploration of the mental state of a woman prepping for a potential climate apocalypse, and you'll struggle to believe it was written before the pandemic. I think of that time Sylvia interviewed the famous futurist. She asked him what was coming next, and he repeated his best-known predictions. Old people in big cities, afraid of the sky. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jenny. It is a pleasure to have you on. We're going to talk about um, Weather, which is your third novel and came out this year. Um, I thought what we could start by doing, given it's sort of strange, it's an unusual way that we're recording the podcast this time around, we're doing it remotely. And I thought what we could start with is maybe giving a sense of where we both are. So where are you in the world? Um, I'm in Red Hook, New York, which is in the Hudson Valley of New York State. And how does it feel? I mean, it's been a really strange summer. I guess you're sort of in New York State, but not in the city itself. But how how have you been, yeah, managing the last few weeks? What's your day-to-day like? Um, Well, it has been strange. I mean, I I lived in the city for 17 years. So it's in some ways, it's very strange when something, however terrible, happens to your your city and you're not there. Um, But... The first part of uh, the spring and summer, of course, has been all about dealing with the pandemic and um, and the really sort of frightening fact of being the epicenter um, of it. Um, and so I've been very much homebound, um, except for doing shopping for some people that, that shouldn't go out at all. Um, we've been, my family and I have been kind of, um, very much, um, at home (laughs) in a way that feels almost like we're living in another century. And then of course, in the last week or so, um, there've been the protests and all the civil unrest, um, which is going on and which we're following very closely. It's funny because I mean, at the, at the end of this novel, I sort of, um, imaginatively leapt ahead just to imagine of, a possibility of what it might be like if, if everything fell apart. And, uh, it's very strange to kind of be watching these pictures of what's going on in the city and in other parts of the country and seeing the fires and the police brutality. Yeah. It's been a very strange week in that regard. I just read today that it was the sunniest May in England since records began. And I think it was the wettest February since 1850-something. It's been a strange summer to be, you know, sort of told to stay inside your house. Exactly. I think that's one of the reasons people sort of collectively seem to have decided that the pandemic is over. I think it's been hard for a lot of people, and it still is, yeah. But I think some of the topics will naturally get explored as we talk more about this book. Um, And maybe a great thing for us to start with would be for you to maybe give us a reading. Just something sure. that gives us a sense of the of the style of the book and and how it's put together. Sure, um, I'm going to read a little ways into it, um, and it, 
the narrator is a librarian um, who has a former mentor who now runs a kind of doomer podcast about climate change and about other scary things coming down the pike. And she's at home with her husband, Ben, and she starts um, thinking about some of the things that Sylvia, her mentor, has said. And she has started answering letters and being sort of her assistant at this point. I think of that time Sylvia interviewed the famous futurist. She asked him what was coming next, and he repeated his best-known predictions. Old people in big cities, afraid of the sky. Some of the people at this private dinner have begun to invest in floating cities, the kind that can be anchored in international waters and run by unmeddlesome governments. But our hosts are gentler sorts, longtime listeners, they say. They take notes during Sylvia's talk, but in the end, they have one nagging question. What would be the safest place? No one they consulted would give them a straight answer. But you've interviewed everyone. Is there any consensus, any clustering patterns of these scientists and journalists? We're not asking for ourselves, but we have children, you understand. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that cuts straight to the sort of, I don't know, sense of ominous, impending doom that goes through the whole book and I think gives it its strength. Uh, what a year for this book to come out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've been sort of joking that I didn't, I didn't have pandemic on my apocalypse bingo card, but, <laughs> um, but it, it certainly fits the bill. Um, I think sometimes with a, a novel, one of the things that's a starting point for me is actually kind of an emotion or a feeling. And, and with this one, it was dread. Um, it was the feeling of, of kind of um, impending doom um, and something that you didn't quite know the shape of but you knew that it was coming. And for this book, for the most part, it's about uh, how that plays out in terms of climate, but also as the political situation um, begins to become more and more fractured in America after the 2016 elections, um, that kind of comes into play too, which ends up making it, I guess, a little more relevant to this moment in time. You've described weather as apocalypse adjacent which I love as a phrase which feels more than ever like a way to describe 2020 but I, I wanted to know what that term sort of means for you well I, I think I was thinking sort of in because another word that I sort of use is is pre-apocalyptic because mm. there's so much um so much writing especially if it concerns um climate that is is post-apocalyptic and I feel like there's been a lot of interesting work done in that area where people are are imagining what what all this will lead to and what it will look like and how our society will um, sort of have to respond to um, this new environment and new life. But I also felt like um, there's a way in which sometimes that feels almost like it lets us off the hook. It allows us to believe that it is um, in some unimaginable future, a future that has also been mapped out very extensively by TV and movies. Um, and I think there's, for me, I was really interested in kind of capturing what I was noticing in myself, which was these really kind of sudden and startling 
registers of scale where one minute I would be thinking about whether this was, you know, an existential crisis, like, like no other we'd ever had, um, in terms of the climate, climate emergency. And then the next minute I would be, um, you know, driving to the grocery store, thinking nothing of it, buying out of season, uh, fruit and vegetables and (laughs) ground beef. I think of that as something I, I think of as, as kind of a twilight knowing where you're in between, um, not knowing and a kind of full knowing. And so this book, weather is meant to have the character Lizzie kind of be in a twilight state for much of the book and, and slowly kind of more, more of it's illuminated to her. Yeah. And I think I really respect that shift between the two scales. If we talk a little bit about your protagonist, Lizzie, I think she's got, you're right. She's got these, the pressures of daily life. She's got a family. She's got the pressures that a family entail, but there's also this as you say, sort of existential dread around her. Like, so maybe we could talk a bit about who she is and, and where she is in her life when the book begins. Like, what what pressure she's under? For me, she's a very familiar character, not only because I have many of the same qualities as she does, but because I think a lot of us know someone who kind of takes on, um, takes on the problems of, of those around. You get the sense that she's got, she's one of those people that everyone opens their heart up to, the bus <laughs> driver, the person she bumps into on the street. And know. I must say, I am that person. I mean, to, to a point that it's, I, I think I look, I look utterly unthreatening is, is the only thing I can think of. Because not only, I, I have, it has two parts to it. One is that people do um, confide in me, strangers, anyone, um, but also people uh, over the years, they also try to recruit me for cults. I think I also look like I have no um, no mooring, you know, so that I would just be like, sure, I'll go off to that. But so, she, but so she, because she's a librarian too, and at least in the states, you know, libraries are their own. They're basically like uh, social services at this point. Um, so much of our our regular social services have just frayed or are non-existent. That. Um, you know, librarians these days wear many, many hats. Um, and in many ways they do function as sort of, uh, therapists and helpers as well as, um, all the other things that they do. And, um, so in the beginning I wanted her to be, uh, she's almost sort of pathologically curious about everyone that comes her way. She's, she's curious about the people that she sees on the street that she doesn't know and about the people that come in to the library and she gets little bits of their story. There's an adjunct that she knows is, um, barely getting by on his salary and he's selling his plasma. There's, um, there's various people that come in and out that she knows a little bit of their story. Um, like recovering addicts. She has a brother who's also in recovery, but I think as she becomes more and more involved in with Sylvia, who is thinking in a much bigger picture way about the problems of the world. Um, one of the questions she kind of has to ask herself is, wait, am I supposed to worry about the whole world now and not just the human world, but the non-human as well? And, you know, the short answer is, is yes, is what she discovers. Yeah. Um, and that's a really, that's a strange moment of recognition for her as she begins to kind of have these flickers of fellow feeling, not only for um, the people that she knows a bit, but also for strangers, also for, um, for non-human creatures. Yeah, one of the things that struck me the hardest about your book is this feeling that things are unsustainable and they need to change a lot for things to be okay. And that feeling is 
also really strangely contradicted by the behavior of most characters, which is this sort of stasis and denial. And that feels really true to life. I, I think one of the questions the book considers, right, is why are people in denial about the climate or about other really serious threats? And I, I, yeah, I'm curious, why do you think, why do you think there's such a disconnect between understanding and behavior? It's something that lots of, it's something that Sylvia, it's something that Lizzie think about openly or indirectly. I think about it a lot too. I mean, I think that, well, I think partly it can vary with people temperamentally. I mean, some people are, um, denial is a much more comfortable state for them than others. Um, but I think, you know, with climate change, um, there's, there's the climate change denial we hear about, which is this sort of hard climate change denial. It's not happening or it's always happened. But, but one of the things I kind of came to believe was that there's really so many variations of it and, and other forms, which I kind of think of as like soft denial. Um, it's, it can be anything from absolutely believing in the science of it, but not feeling it at all emotionally um, to, I think a kind of fatalism that it's all, um, it's all going to go to hell. We can't do anything about it. So why worry about it? Both of those things to me seem like a, a forms of denial because um, they're not actually engaging with the bigger question of, yes, it's very dire. Yes, we're not sure what to do. Does that mean that there is nothing to do or that we have no responsibility to kind of find our place in that? Um, and then I got to see in a really interesting way in the early days of the pandemic here, I think because I had a reputation as a doomer among my friends, I got a lot of phone calls from people calling to ask, you know, should I leave? If some people could leave New York, some people couldn't, but also asking, can I still do this? Should I do that? Is it okay if I, and, you know, I had to be the one who was sort of like, no, it's not okay. Um, yeah. these things are, um, but, but I talk about this a little bit in weather. I mean, there is this, um, I think in the book, I call it the incredulity response. And whenever we're in a situation where we don't recognize it, it hasn't happened to us before, um, our brain just keeps searching for a version of it that is familiar. So that's why everyone tried to compare it to the flu. People were like, oh, I don't want to get the flu, but if I get the flu, it's not that big a deal. Or that's why when you're on a plane, they have to tell people over and over not to take their luggage if it crashes because that's what people do. They'll sit in a plane that's on fire and instead of getting off it, they'll get their luggage because their brain says the plane has landed. It is time to get your luggage. And, you know, that was one of my fascinating kind of rabbit holes was just reading so much disaster psychology. And it's also called the normalcy bias. It happens too, interestingly enough, with political things that even as uh, America has descended more and more into um, an authoritarian um, state, and there's been these fascist elements coming in and becoming more apparent. Um, people keep not saying that that's what's happening because it hasn't happened here before. Yeah. I, I think the, the flip side of that probably this summer in 2020 has been this fascinating mm, response from so many different countries where things that didn't seem possible, that were impossible to imagine, you know, airlines just grinding to a halt people just stopping international travel, people stockpiling and using food in ways that are completely different and not using public transport and cycling mm -hmm. everywhere. In London, they've 
there are whole road there are whole roads in the central sort of like metropole that have been converted to bicycles only and you mm. think that's amazing you could just do that just like that you know right and that's the real difference i think with the the pandemic versus the climate crisis is that the climate crisis is is of course already here and already affecting many people but it does have a kind of rolling quality of disaster it doesn't always it's not distributed evenly um and yeah. so people can keep thinking uh, thing that we're always told that it, it would be impossible to do these things it would be impossible for people to travel less it would be impossible um for these cycling lanes it'd be impossible for us to um you know, live more locally with the food chain. Um, it turns out they're not impossible. They're just economically uh, really difficult. And so nobody wanted to uh, make that sacrifice um, when the deaths, <laughs> the death and destruction still seemed uh, like it might not happen to you. But when it became clear that each airplane ride, each time you went to a store and picked that uh, you know, fancy thing that you're going to get at the store each time that that might actually cause a chain that led to your sickness or death. I mean, that that's very powerful, very visceral. It's a kind of almost sinister interconnectedness, which um, is the flip side of the interconnectedness that, you know, environmentalists talk about in a more sort of web of life way. Um, yeah. But it's, it, it was shocking. I think most environmental uh, activists are, are a little stunned at the degree to which it can be shut down if if people were to feel this was the same level threat. Yeah, completely. It is really uncanny how things can change very suddenly in a moment. You used this word just now. Um, I'd really love to hear more about. You said, my friends think of me as a doomer. Um, what is a doomer? Well... I sort of just use it as a silly shorthand, I guess, but um, it's basically someone that is, um, you know, thinks that things are, are quite bad and might get worse. So you can be um, in terms of um, environmental stuff. It's people who think that, um, that a lot of the rhetoric about like stopping climate change is uh, that we are past that point. Um, I think in, uh, in your country, you know, it might be someone like Paul Kings North, um, who says, I'm, I'm going to walk away from some of this activism that I've been doing for years because I don't, I feel like a priest who no longer believes in God. I don't believe that, that all of these things that we're saying about what we can do are possible anymore. Um, and, you know, I actually became less of a doomer as the book went on, um, because I felt like I kept coming across really interesting stories of people doing, um, all sorts of things that, that seemed, uh, that they were smart adaptations and mitigations of the, the havoc that climate change is wreaking and, um, will continue to do so. Um, so I became less that way, but like, I think you can also be like, you'd be a doomer right now in, in America. If you, if you were saying, oh, we're not even going to have free and fair elections, which I've been Mm. known, I've been known to, (laughs) I've been known to, to say might be the case. Does it also have any connection to this uh, this word that's used in the novel? So Lizzie, is, at some point, is fantasizing about her doomstead. Right. Um, uh, it's funny because the book is being translated into a couple languages, and I realized that uh, that is not a word that people know because I keep getting asked about it. 
Um, I think you guys would call it maybe, and I remember this from reading an article so many years ago, like seven years ago or something that was about billionaires uh, getting bolt holes in, in mm-hmm. um, New Zealand. I think a doomstead is kind of like that. Um, it's like a place there where you go when, when everything falls to pieces and you have some sort of setup there, whether it's a, a country cabin or for, for these people, <laughs> huge compounds with uh, their own you know, water systems. Silicon Valley apparently became kind of a secret handshake to say that you were buying property in New Zealand and that would be a way mm. to tell someone you were a fellow uh, doomer. I think this question of sort of um, sticking with the trouble versus sort of going to a doomsday, going to a butthole is, 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 is also quite a central tension in the book. I, I really found that fascinating. Like, I mean, let's talk a bit about prepper culture because I think that also comes up. Um, mm. Prepper culture seems to be about self-reliance or self-reassurance and regaining a sense of control in an uncertain world. It also seems to be pretty addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, is prepper culture healthy? Is it helpful? How would you describe being Well, I prepper? think the way we... It's generally, um, it leans towards kind of right-wing, um, white people, um, building more or less compounds where they are going to live self-reliantly with their family and perhaps with other, uh, fellow preppers that are in their survival groups, I believe they call them. Um, and, and what their, their whole point is to not need to rely on anyone, um, except this very small circle of sort of vetted people who are exactly like they are. Um, and it's often, um, very connected to gun culture and, um, it's, it's pretty frightening in general. It's sort of an understandable, maybe first step. If you really have that moment about the climate where you're like, this is terrifying how bad it is and how it's predicted to get. But I, to me, I, I ended up feeling like ultimately, um, it was, it was maybe the least useful thing you could do. It was, I mean, I was happy for our, our prepper side that we had some food already (laughs) and some things when all this started to happen here with this latest disaster. But in general, I feel sort of like, um, that's material prepping, you know, that's, that's getting stuff that you think you'll need. And what I became really fascinated in learning more about as I was reading the book is what have people done that is more sort of emotional or spiritual prepping? So I would read about people that were like in solitary confinement for years. Like how did they, how did they keep their spirits up? How did they, you know, what poems did they memorize? What stories did they tell themselves? How did they sort of structure uh, time when there was so much anxiety and fear? Um, And I think we're all getting a weird little lesson in that during the pandemic of like, what does it mean to sort of, try to furnish your own mind, um, with something besides the, the dread, um, that's coming in through our channels of information. Yeah. I, I really hear you. Actually in all of human history, the way that people have gotten through terrible times is to move together collectively. It's the opposite of prepping. It's, it's that it's to build, as I've been so pleased to see these mutual aid societies. It's not to Rebecca Solnit, you know, writes beautifully about this in um, A Paradise Built in Hell about sort of disaster solidarity and how people come together to help each other. So I think that's the kind of 
prepping that I admire, which is a sort of uh, collective uh, spiritual and emotional ideas of aid to give others. And, and I think that comes out in the book itself as well, in the sense that you sort of have this character who, who maybe self-soothes sometimes by thinking like, you know, who would be in my dooms, doomsday team, <laughs> yeah. but, but is ultimately coming back to the everyday, the family, the like steps that are required to maintain that interpersonal network working. Well, one thing I, that really struck me, just a little fact I came across when I was reading the disaster psychology stuff was, was about search and rescue teams. And, and uh, it just said that it was a known fact. I put this in, I put this in weather that um, people who are lost often walk past their own search parties. And so it was talking about how they have to train people to basically tackle people um, <laughs> because they're, they're, they're so convinced they're lost and will never be found that, that they just, and, and I thought that was such an interesting kind of image of, especially when, when you think of um, any kind of collective action politically, like, you know, there's a scene towards the end of weather where it's after what I intend to be the, the election this fall and everyone's milling around and no one quite knows what to do. No one knows what's going to come of their vote. And, and that's when she remembers this fact, you know, that, that maybe, um, maybe they're all walking past their own search parties. And, and so there's a little bit of a, a quiet call to what it would mean to have a more collective idea um, yeah. of, of agency. You've been listening to the Granter Magazine podcast. The music was taken from the album First Flights by Trilog. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people to find us. And a reminder that this has been recorded under lockdown conditions. So please be kind if you can. <laughs>